This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Noor al Qadri, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. I'm going to talk to him about G20, but also want to get his uh, take on the Cotter story as well. He is with us now. Hello, Noor. How are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time. Always appreciate it. I know this isn't what we were certainly uh, scheduled to talk about, but we can't uh, let you uh, go without uh, getting your impression of uh, uh, the situation in regard to Omar Cotter. The uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation has said, and this is a quote, Mr. Cotter admitted to killing an American soldier while fighting with al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The notion that Canadian taxpayers should be on the hook for paying such a person $10 million is highly offensive. If the Trudeau government wishes to apologize for errors made in the past, that's one thing, but handing $10 million in taxpayers' money to Cotter is unacceptable. If the federal government has an extra $10 million kicking around, they should give it to the families of the Canadian military veterans who were killed in Afghanistan by people who were fighting alongside Cotter. What are your thoughts, Noor? Such a story um, definitely has um, two two sides that uh, we need to look into. Uh, Omar Kader was 15 years old. Uh, he's uh, he's a child when uh, he he was uh, part of the fight in Afghanistan. Uh, he is a Canadian. The Canadian government um, should uh, have brought him into Canada. He should have um, been in in a prison for uh, for the youth, and um, he should have gone in uh, in, the, in the right um, program. Omar Kader um, was left. Uh, in Guantanamo Bay, uh, a facility that uh, is very well known for torture uh, by by the Americans. Um, the Canadian government, the former Canadian government, did not do enough to bring him home, uh, although there was lots of pressure about uh, this. And um, the Canadian government um, did not do enough um, in um, pushing the American government to hand in Omar Khadr um, to the Canadian authorities, uh, and uh, because of that, uh, I would suspect that a youngster like Omar Kader, who has been pushed into war to be part of that uh, war in uh, in Afghanistan, uh, as a child he didn't probably know um, know better, and uh, instead of putting him in the in the right facility to uh, fix his status, we probably ruined. The majority of uh, of his youthful, youthful years, uh, it's been um, more than 15 years now, and uh, this guy is still facing this uh, this ordeal. He has to get on with his life and uh, and continue. And the Canadian government uh, has to take responsibility in such a way that they cannot uh, do this again um, in other situations. We've seen the conspiracy of the Canadian government in uh, the. Uh, Maharar case, and Maharar settled almost with another $10 million. Um, now we've got Omar Kader, and uh, there are probably other uh, other situations. Uh, we've seen the Al-Malki case and, um, and, and others that the Canadian government has apologized. Uh, the Canadian government has to get its act together. Uh, they have to stop doing um, the wrong things when um, they endanger Canadians uh, in, in other countries. And uh, especially when they don't get the, the right uh, service of justice uh, in, in, in these countries. And um, I suspect $10 million is, uh, is a big grounding error in, uh, uh, in, in any government. Uh, so it's, it's not that much of money that we should be talking about from a strategic perspective for a tax federation. Um, 
mind you that um, uh, we had lots of people who were killed in Afghanistan. Uh, we we respect those uh, martyrs for for their souls for their service to uh, to Canada. Uh, but the Canadian government also went and collaborated with other other uh, players when uh, they were fighting uh, in Libya, for instance. General Charles Bouchard said equivocally that we collaborated with. Uh, Abdul Hakim Balhaj was a senior member of Al Qaeda. So the Canadian government also commits mistakes in these types of situations, in uh, when they're talking and 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 operating on on the international uh, arena. It's not Omar Khadr that only committed a mistake. It's governments and the military that we have committed mistakes too. How will the U.S. react to this? Do you think? I would suspect that they would react in the same way that they would have reacted to the Maharar. They would not give it attention. They um, uh, will will leave it for the Canadians to sort that out, and, uh, and they will not apologize, and they will uh, um, they they will not uh, um, say that they have committed any mistakes uh, in, um, in in that situation. Imprisoning a minor uh, in a uh, in a in a facility like Guantanamo, where torture is very well known, uh, in that uh, in that facility is absolutely not acceptable from a human rights perspective. Uh, Guantanamo was something that even President Obama promised. It was one of his key promises to to close, and his admittance that uh, this is a facility that should not be uh, with a company with a country that creates uh, and talks about human rights and promoting democracy. Uh, and uh, for a Canadian to be there is uh, is totally unacceptable. Are we legally bound to pay him ten million dollars? Mm, I uh, this is a, there's a judicial case. Uh, definitely, he had uh, he had asked for twenty million dollars uh, in in that judicial case. Uh, the government hadn't confirmed anything, but there are just some leaks that uh, there are talks about uh, settling this uh, this case. Most of those situations, they're trying to settle them at, uh, at at the end. So they ask for an amount, they give them half that amount or something like that. When the government sees that uh, this could go on forever, and if they want to fight it in court, they're going to probably pay more than $10 million, and there's a big chance that they're going to lose. So they settle it uh, ahead of time. All right, let's move on to the G20, Noor. Uh, what is the priority? What are they going to be talking about this time out? Uh, it's... Uh, there are lots of uh, chaos in, uh, in this G20. Uh, while um, every G20 would have an agenda, the hosting country would always try to um, maximize their potential in, uh, in that G20. And the hosting country this year is Germany. And Germany is uh, calling, has called for an election on September 24th, uh, which means that uh, anything that they want to push forward, especially for Angela Merkel, Who's trying to fight for her seat again? Uh, this is going. It's going to be full of uh, election stuff. So it's uh, it's her election um, program from an economic perspective being put forward uh, on uh, on that agenda. While uh, she will try to push for that, there are many players around the world that are going to uh, be looking at things differently. So there is going to be a showdown between her and Trump. Uh, on, on climate change, uh, especially after uh, President Trump uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. So that wa- that's a big thing, and I think it's going to be uh, front and center. Uh, the first meeting uh, of uh, President Trump and President Putin of Russia 
uh, is going to happen in Germany on the sides of the G20. And uh, that's, again, uh, going to be a, a sideline uh, thing that is going to overshadow what's going to happen in uh, in that uh, agenda, especially after uh, all the ordeals that are happening in the United States with uh, uh, the Russia scandals and uh, and the collaboration of many American officials with, uh, with Russian officials. Uh, so that's that's a key thing. Um, you've got Brexit, uh, and uh, and now mm, the negotiations between the European Union and uh, uh, and and the UK. This is going to be a, uh, a key thing. There are lots of uh, little details that uh, are going to be challenged uh, in there. We've got uh, Ireland, who is part of the UK, but also wants to be part uh, of uh, um, the European Union. So there are going to be discussions on uh, on that uh, front. Uh, Theresa May, who uh, did not uh, win the uh, majority government that she was hoping to win uh, a few weeks ago in uh, in, in the UK, and now uh, she uh, she's she's having like uh, lots of pressure from inside the, uh, her political party, especially that she has a. Uh, uh, she has an agreement to, to form a majority government with, a, uh, with an Irish uh, party, the DUP. So all of those are going to be uh, issues to be looked at. Uh, the focus within those, is going, especially as part of trade, is there is going to be discussion in trade uh, on trade. Uh, when the UK or Britain is part of the G20 and uh, they have challenges uh, with... Uh, uh, they're part of the G20, but they have challenges with... The, <clears throat> elements of uh, um, the discussions on uh, on the European Union uh, negotiations uh, like uh, trade, uh, immigration, and borders. Noor El-Khadri has been with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Noor, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Always, uh, Scott. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Uh, let's bring in uh, Celine Bach, senior fellow at the uh, CIGI Center for International Governance and Innovation uh, and its Global Economy Program, and is with us now. Hello, Celine. How are you today? Very well. Nice to, nice to be with you. Thank you for taking the time. How will uh, U.S. President Trump fit into this G20 this time out, especially with the chatter of the Paris Accord lately and, of course, uh, his position on it? Uh, well, there'll be a lot of people trying to find ways to make things work, um, and that'll that'll be through a number of different avenues. Uh, one avenue will possibly be uh, finding common ground on uh, infrastructure, um, because infrastructure, just like, like the the you know fast trains that are being announced in Ontario, are part of um, attaining climate goals because they 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 help us get around without. Um, putting uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so that's a, a way that um, there will be some outreach to President Trump. Um, there, there may be others through uh, you know, putting, putting people to work um, through more financing uh, for projects that, that can uh, put innovation into the economy. Uh, but it's going to be a tough slog. You know, President Trump has, has uh, through his uh, speech in the Rose Garden, has isolated himself from the international community, and, and this is the first time that that those that type of uh, decision has been made in the run-up to a, a G20 meeting. Is he going to feel that isolation at this summit? I mean, basically, the rest of the world is in. He's not. How does that change the dynamic? 
Well, you know, it's interesting how local politics always comes into international meetings like this. So they're obviously... Um, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of uh, Germany, is facing re-election in the fall, and um, you know she won't, she will not uh, gain political support domestically if she um, uh, supports Trump in in his decision to not uh, be part of the global effort to address climate change. And so, you know, it's it's one thing to work for a global consensus on climate change, but it's another thing to do that and to risk uh, the support of, of Germans in, in that process. So, you know, Trump is likely to feel um, some, uh, some heat uh, in his discussions with uh, Angela Merkel and, and with his peers. Um, but, and, and it is, I think, possible that there, there might be a coalition of the willing, um, whether that's a G18 or G19, that um, can sign on to an agreement that we're going to continue to work together um, to address climate change, but to do that by putting people to work and uh, putting people to work through infrastructure investment, through more, um, uh, through banks that are, uh, you know, sending money into the real economy, as people uh, call it, into small and medium-sized companies that are, you know, uh, actually going to make jobs for people. Um, so, so there's going to be, I think, a, you know, some bridge building on on those areas of common ground. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, it, it you know it can often take a, a local uh, flavor politically, depending upon where these uh, meetings are held. Uh, that being said, what will what will be the accomplishment when it's over, or will there be lots of distress? Actions, uh, whether it's Trump's take on the Paris Accord or even the meeting with Putin. Um, well, so there are some areas where there, that, you know, we may be able to declare victory, and and I think that um, you know, one of those may be uh, the role of women in international trade um, because of uh, you know, the issues surrounding international trade uh, as a as a matter that you know, the the U.S. will will not necessarily support. Um, specific initiatives targeted at, at women, um, I think, may find um, greater sort of uh, acceptability and, and might be uh, an area around which uh, people can rally uh, to all agree. Um, infrastructure may be one of those. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what, what is done that doesn't, you know, doesn't bring Mr. Trump into the, into the uh, consensus, but that has the rest of the world uh, rallying around. And, and climate change is probably going to be one of those. Uh, there has been chatter, of course, uh, about the sideline meeting between him and Putin. What are we expecting from that? Uh, well, you know, there there was a great deal of affinity between uh, President Trump and, and uh, President Putin in the uh, you know in the run up to the U.S. election and the inauguration, et cetera. There's obviously a great deal of political strain right now associated with the re- with the relationship between uh, the U.S. president and and Russia. Um, I think that we're, we can expect um, some uh, you know some some very nice photo opportunities. <laughs> I think that. Um, but I, I don't know if uh, much of substance will come from, from those discussions. Celine Bach has been with us, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Celine, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about Omar Khadr and, of course, uh, ISIS and 
what is uh, happening uh, in Iraq and if, in fact, we are seeing the end of this group, certainly from uh, a geographic organization anyway. Uh, let's bring in John Thompson, Security Consultant, Strategic Intelligence Group. He is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Not bad. Yourself? Good. Thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate this. I, I can't get started here without uh, getting your impression on the story that's uh, just breaking today about uh, uh, Omar Khadr uh, possibly receiving $10 million and a apology from the Canadian government. What are your thoughts? Well, judging from cyberspace, the Canadian public is doing a slow burn, and I think our Prime Minister has just restricted himself to one term. Uh, I think, they, from what I can see, the majority of the, the public is incensed about this decision. Uh, you know, we've talked to, we've, we just talked to a professor earlier on uh, about this. Uh, his take was uh, over and above uh, uh, the human rights element, of, uh, or sorry, over and above the, the, the financial settlement and such, that uh, the Canadian government did not do enough to get him out of there when all this was going down. What are your thoughts on that? I think the word would be poppycock. Um, <laughs> we didn't have to do anything about him. And what's more, a lot of the so-called international law, and I hope the, uh, the apostrophe comes through at come through in that, but is not actually decided or formal. It's people making stuff up and saying it applies. Uh, ch- uh, child soldiers, there's no definition. Uh, what's more, the way most of us understand the term, a child soldier is someone who is kidnapped, torn from their family and their community, and compelled to fight. In fundamentalist Islam, one is assumed to be an adult the onset of puberty. And Omar Khadr made an adult decision by his own lights and the lights of his family um, and volunteered to go. The, that whole child soldier idea doesn't wash. The other idea... What about, is, what about the argument, uh, John, that, you know, at that age, he's just not old enough to make those decisions, to know what he's doing? We've respected that decision from a lot of other people. In my own family background, there was my grandfather who made four attempts to get into the Canadian Army before he finally succeeded hmm. at the age of 15 and went off to France in 1916. No one ever said child soldier about him. Yeah, good point. Uh, so um, are, are we legally obligated to pay this money then? No, we're not. Um, we're, what we were legally obligated to do was have him charged with high treason because by every practical account... Of, of what that stands for, and under Canadian law, even at the time, that's what he did in 2002. Remember, he could have just as easily been uh, fighting with members of the PPCLI or our JTF2. But treason also includes taking arms against one of Canada's allies. So by fighting against American troops in Afghanistan at the time, he was committing high treason, and we've never discussed that. Uh, so you think that trumps uh, us not going in and saving a Canadian, Canadian citizen who's being held underage? No. Uh, well, he wasn't underage when the debate came up. That was certainly the case. But the, the point is that, you know, uh, there's several points here, but al-Qaeda suspects were not prisoners of war. The, uh, the regulations just did not apply. 
largely because with a prisoner of war, there's some political entity with whom you can enact a decision and repatriate a prisoner too. Um, his brother, Abdul Rahman, that uh, was picked up as a member of the Taliban, and he was conscripted into the Taliban, was treated very differently. The other point is that, if you, that most Canadians remember the Kader family is a family that treated its Canadian citizenship with a great deal of contempt, except at such time as it became convenient. And so for him to be putting claims on a Canadian citizenship is something that... The, most people really object to. What about the Supreme Court of Canada ruling that the actions of the federal officials who participated in the interrogations uh, had offended the most basic Canadian standards about treatment of detained youth suspects? Uh, again, it was an area where they really shouldn't... The law has not been defined and written, and wasn't. It was, we were making it up as we went along, and we could have just as easily done it the same, in a different way. And I think that's one of the points. And, again, the Supreme Court is in error here. Uh, So do you think the Canadian government is just writing a check to get this to go away? No, it it won't go away, and it'll turn back. Uh, I think the other thing, though, is that uh, the the family of uh, the late Sergeant uh, Christopher Spears, the Army medic who was killed when uh, Omar Khadr was captured, have secured a $100 million damage claim against the Cotter, against Omar Cotter. Mm. So if he's got assets, the first thing they can do is at least put a freeze on them and claim them here in a Canadian court. Is that possible? Is that, is that, uh, is that viable? Is that a viable means of, of resolving this? I think so. And I think most Canadian citizens would be far happier to see $10 million of our tax money in the hands of uh, uh, the Spears family than in Omar Khadr's. How will this case change process moving forward? Well, part of the big problem is, is that we there is no law. We've never actually defined things. We've just made assumptions and never, ever tested them. And it's one of these cases of sort of activist law, and a lot of it was being made up sort of out of the, the progressive corner in the, the early part of the last decade. You know, if you the war in Afghanistan was supposed to be illegal. But um, if you actually apply the test, I mean, what was an al-Qaeda prisoner? Because, they, uh, again, Canadian criminal law, other than the argument about high treason, didn't apply for anything he was doing in Afghanistan at that time. It does now. But also, again, the status of prisoners of war is very carefully articulated. And the one big difference, of course, is that fact that there was no political entity you could treat with. You know, a tribal rebellion, a political militia, all sorts of other things that you might engage in a conflict with. Somewhere there's a political boss you can talk to and make uh, an agreement with and repatriate a prisoner to. Nothing like that with al-Qaeda. So that was a soft spot. The Americans, again, if you look at the American military in Guantanamo Bay, we're also making up the laws they went along. The only thing they had was a precedent about illegal combatants, which went back over 100 years uh, when the Americans first took over the Philippines. And the whole thing about child soldiers, again, it's a huge gray area. It is not nailed down and defined. There's just some assumptions about it that are not universally shared. And this is basically just the government and, and uh, Cotter's lawyers doing a deal, is it not? That's about all it is. There isn't any, 
I don't know. Well, as you said, there's no official law charge, anything like that, that they owe him for, is there? Uh, that Sorry, that the Carter family can apply in this case? Yeah. Not really. Nothing that would really stand up to a, a decent lawyer and a hard argument. Uh, how is the U.S. going to react to this? Um, I, well, I think they're hitting the roof as well. But again, it's a change of regime, a change of administration. I mean, one of the reasons why Carter got finally repatriated to Canada was President Obama was desperately trying to close down Guantanamo and clear the prisoners out. And, uh, you know, he handed, uh, kept reminding our government that uh, this was one of ours, technically. I mean, Omar Carter had no place to go other than here. But uh, I think... Uh, uh, the Harper government read the public mood very, very well and dragged their feet as much as they could, and I wouldn't blame them in the least. How are Canadians going to react to this? We are an awfully given country, a giving country. We do, we do support those that are down and out. How do you think we're going to view this? Well, it's pretty clear already. Uh, in, the mood is very, very strongly against this. Even people that... Uh, might have had a more sympathetic view to Carter and don't like to, to see uh, our tax money spent this way. But even at uh, when he was really playing, his, uh, he and his lawyer were playing for our sympathies as much as they could, it was still clear that the, the, the public view was very much against the Carter family. What do you think the chances are of this money if if the Trudeau government gives him ten million dollars? What do you think the chances of that are going down to the down south to the family of of the soldier? Oh, I hope it's very strong. There's some other things that have to be remembered about the Cotter family. I mean, you go back and look at them over the last twenty years. Among other things, we stopped like giving them passports because even before the nine eleven attacks, they were quote unquote losing their passports almost every six months, and we got the sense that they were being recycled and used for uh, the purposes of al-Qaeda. And so after a while, we said, no, no more passports for you. Um, this is a country, again, uh, well, remember his father was killed um, by Pakistani troops while he was in support of uh, al-Qaeda paramilitary. Uh, that's where one of his brothers was also handicapped for life. And that's the point where... Uh, Carter's mother stopped contemptuous expressions of American society and embraced our uh, our medical programs and came back. He's got uh, uh, two other brothers that went to Guantanamo Bay, but uh, at least one of them was sort of a family rebel because it was clear from his own testimony that their father was encouraging them all to get into Al-Qaeda, and he didn't want to, so he stayed out, although the Taliban scooped him up when they started to fight the coalition in October 2001 in Afghanistan. What are your thoughts on uh, Dennis uh, Edney, uh, Mr. Cotter's lawyer, and him seeking a, a, a formal apology from the United States as well? Oh, well, I mean, there's one thing you have to say about him. He's certainly been tenacious uh, in his view and his support of the Cotter family. Although, again, how do you explain that? I mean, he's been had a li- living at his home, so um, is he he's seeing something we're not? Well, no, I think he's just being a social campaigner. And again, he's, he, you have to at least concede this much. He has his views and his principles, and he's sticking to them. 
I mean, I can always respect that, even if I don't agree with them. Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has already weighed on this, saying basically if the Trudeau government wishes to apologize for errors made in the past, that's one thing, but handing $10 million in taxpayers' money to Qatar is is uh, unacceptable. If the federal government has an extra $10 million kicking around, they should give it to the families of the Canadian military veterans who were killed in Afghanistan by people who were fighting alongside uh, Qatar. Do you think this is going away, or do you think this is going to, uh, as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, uh, hurt Trudeau's chances of re-election. I think it's going to seriously damage them. This is an issue that will not go away. Has the pendulum swung too far, do you think, from Canadians? Um, actually, not really. I mean, we are tolerant. We are accepting. But um, I've noticed, for example, in the past, if, if you remember, say, uh, 2006, when Hezbollah and, and Israel were fighting each other, and suddenly we had all these Canadians who had been living in Lebanon for years and suddenly were reminding us of their Canadian citizenship and demanding an evacuation. There were a lot of people who were liberals and NDPers who were suddenly going, why are we doing this? You know, that Canadian citizenship is supposed to mean something. The, the dislike of people who uh, make claims without earning them cuts across party lines in this country. We're proud of our citizenship. We're not happy to see it being abused. Do you think this? Do you think this is the best of a bad scenario? I mean, or or is this just a cop out? Is this just politics? You know, full full steam ahead, or is this just the best of a bad situation? It's politics. It could have been uh, contested and fought very easily, but uh, again, we have a prime minister with different views uh, to his predecessor. And I think he was more willing to uh, make a deal and have the, the issue go away and make an apology that most people couldn't stand for. Uh, the Prime Minister's comments this morning were something like, you know, it's taking, it's going through the judicial system and it will all, in other words, it's got nothing to do with him. It's all through, uh, you know, it's all going through legal corridors. What are your thoughts on that? That's a cop-out. I also noticed that uh, he was on an outbound plane when, this, uh, when news of this leaked. So was largely making sure he was out of the country when the story broke. So does this change things moving forward as far as the process on how we handle people like this in the future? Probably not, because we're still back to the same problem. Um, if we catch uh, a Canadian citizen who's a member of ISIS or Al-Qaeda abroad, you know, again, we're back to square one. What do we do with them? Yeah. All right, getting to ISIS in Iraq, lots of chatter that they're towards the end. Is that accurate, or is that wishful thinking? Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with military history, but uh, ISIS is putting up a fight like the, the Japanese on Iwo Jima. Hmm. Uh, as, as long as they've got ammunition and the cover from artillery fire, they're holding tight. Uh, admittedly, the area they control inside Mosul is, is very, very limited now. Um, but they're not going to surrender. They're going to uh, fight to the death. In the meantime, they have thoroughly wrecked, you know, one of Iraq's largest cities. Yeah. Uh, what about leadership? We've certainly heard that their leadership has taken a hit. Does that mean anything, or is it just a matter of time before uh, new leaders appear? The uh, That's one of the problems in, in counterterrorism, especially if you, say, look at something like al-Qaeda or ISIS. Uh, the leaders can always be replaced. There's always another generation. 
uh, that can come and, and fill in. I mean, in some cases, if you look at the, the top-level people in Al-Qaeda, you know, the replacements of the replacements of the replacements have been killed. Hmm. But they'll, they'll keep coming. Of course, the point is, is the attrition curve, uh, and I hate to use that expression, but let's face it, it's a, are you killing their leadership off faster uh, than they can learn their jobs properly? Uh, you know, al-Baghdadi, for example, is, uh, he's been running the, uh, what, what became ISIL for about, uh, 10 years now. Uh, highly experienced. He won't be replaced easily. Uh, but he's not the tactician. He's not the, the, uh, technician. He's not the bomb maker. He's the ideological leader. And again, there's someone else who can read his pamphlets, look at his judgments, and step into his, uh, cooling shoes when he's gone. As they lose territory, are they liable to lash out uh, outside of those borders, more other, uh, more terrorism attacks in other areas? Well, they've been trying uh, for the last two years, ever since the, uh, the curve started to favor the Iraqi government and the Assad governments in Syria. They've been moving uh, personnel and resources uh, into Africa, elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, and trying to bring them back into Europe so that they can build up capabilities later. But the main difference between ISIS, uh, or ISIL, or Daesh, uh, and Al-Qaeda is that it was predicated on actually controlling a sanctuary area. Al-Qaeda claimed that they were always doing things so they could prepare for the return of the caliphate. Mm-hmm. Where ISIS took the whole step forward and said, we have reestablished the caliphate, we've built a base, and from here you know, we will spread Islamic rule in all directions. And without that base, a big chunk of their ideology is, is damaged. They'll have to reestablish that base somewhere. And that's going to be very difficult. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group. ISIS, three years after the group's leader announced the creation of a cal- if its caliphate, the group is being forced out of Mosul. John, thank you for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As his tenure as governor comes to a close, Chris Christie, remember him? Uh, One of the first original supporters of Donald Trump and, of course, uh, the governor of New Jersey, has invited criticism after closing off a beach to the public and then using it with his family. Also, uh, Trump on the weekend tweeted a gift Uh, of him uh, beating up a wrestler, but CNN's logo superimposed over top of the wrestler's face. Uh, To talk more about the antics of all that is U.S. politics, Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR, and of course you can read her in the Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily, etc. She is with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? I am so fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So always. Uh, so let's talk about, well, you know what? First of all, um, and I know we, I'm going to blindside you on this, but your thoughts on the Omar Cotter case. Uh, obviously, this is uh, uh, political correctness versus a, a series of lawyers who think that his uh, rights have been violated. And from all we've heard from the legal experts we've talked to, yes, in fact, that they were. How does Canada position this moving forward? How does how, how does Prime Minister Trudeau come out of this smelling like roses? Well, that's going to be an uphill climb. You know, I think that a lot of us empathize with Omar Carter, uh, considering his age and how long he spent in Guantanamo. 
And the fact that he was brought back, and yes, it took a very long time uh, for that to happen, was sort of justice served at that point. So when I saw the headline this morning in my Globe and Mail, I thought, okay, and then I read $10 million. How did they come to that number? And that number, that very number, and there's all sorts of reasons, you know, he had sleep deprivation, he had this, he had that. That sheer number is going to cause, have catastrophic consequences. Quite honestly, for Trudeau, it'll fuel the narrative in any election run-up against him. You know, I think this is really, really hard when you're putting a huge number on that to the average Canadian who is struggling every day to earn money and also has sleepless nights. And I understand that you can't necessarily compare the two. But $10 million is a very hard number to explain away. But Alyssa, we're just trying to be great Canadians. We're just trying to be the great Canadian, the great Canadian country that everybody thinks we are. We're always right. Oh, well, listen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> tongue, tongue placed firmly in cheek, Scott. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this one is not going to play well. It just won't. And I think that a lot of people thought that we were great Canadians when we brought him back. And Good that, point. yes, he was a child, and he was brainwashed, and he paid the price of, of uh, living in Guantanamo, which is not anybody's ideal vacation destination by any stretch of the imagination. But to put a price on that, and I'm sure they went all through this. I'm sure, like, look, this is the Supreme Court, and they went through line by line on how they came up with that type of number. And, you know, will Omar Carter ever be able to find a job in this country? Not if anybody does a Google search on him. So I think that what they wanted to do was, A, right a wrong, B, do so with legal underpinnings, and C, put a price on that knowing that his quality of life is forever changed. I guarantee you that will be the narrative, but whether Canadians buy that, who knows. Does Trudeau have a choice? Is this just the best of a bad situation? Yes, it is the best of a bad situation, and his team is working... uh, double time now in order to uh, provide questions for him, I mean, answers for him when he does get questioned. Uh, you know, I believe um, tolerance is, is uh, on recess right now. So when you, I could be wrong about that, Scott, but I think I'm right. And, you know, when you release a judgment like this, you tend to do it when there is no question period that you need to worry about. All right, let's move on to uh, Governor Chris Christie. I, I don't know what's, what's what makes me cringe more about this, the fact that <laughs> this whole thing is happening or just the sight of him and his family by themselves on this giant shoreline. I, I'm not sure which is weirder here. Um, go ahead and, and give the narrative and, and tell everybody what happened in this scenario. Well, Chris Christie closed this beach over um, over uh, July 4th weekend. And, and, and let's step back a little bit. I mean, he, this is one of the most reviled Republican politicians in New Jersey right now. Mm. You know, right now, uh, there is nobody has anything good to say about Chris Christie. You know, he was considered, um, a, I don't know, as short as 18 months to two years ago, uh, front runner in the Republican Party as a potential successor to the presidency. Um, that quickly uh, went down the drain or down the turnpike when he decided to uh, close a bridge in retaliation for um, one of the townships who uh, who actually voted against something. 
And now he, and then he had this run-up with Trump where he was vying for a post that would make him close to him, and Trump played him all the way along and then basically uh, booted him to the corner. And now here he is serving out the last, oh, I don't know, six months of his governorship in New Jersey. And he decides to go to a, quote-unquote, private beach that he closed and have his family enjoy. Now, why did he close it? Tell everybody why he closed it. You know, I'm not sure that Scott... Lack of money. Lack of money. money. (laughs) Couldn't keep it open. No funds to keep it open. And, and you're right, and he did say, listen, we were there, there was no cleanup, there were no lifeguards, we were just there on the beach. But optic-wise, and here's the thing that, you know, can drive any politician and anybody crazy, is that obviously this is a drone shot, and it's taken of his, him and his family, and I guess, you know, Chris Christie's physique is one that is uh, easily identifiable, and that's how this all blew up into a situation where I'm sure when his aides called him, he was thinking, how did they ever find out? Well, yeah, and then it got to the point where there were planes flying overhead pulling banners, uh, making note of it. So uh, did he really think that nobody would spot him there? Yeah, he had to have, because not only was he there sitting in his little low lounge chair, but so was all his family. And then he is absolutely struck by the fact that the media in his, you know, in the press conference is asking him all these questions. And he's trying to pull a Trump. I don't know if you saw that press conference, but it was quite hilarious. And he kept saying, okay, next question, next question. Isn't there anything more important we can talk about here? Yes, next question. But the media was not going to let him off the hook. And they also know that he's going to be out of the job soon. So I think that uh, the gloves were off, and they absolutely let him have it. And at the end of the day, he doesn't seem to uh, mind. He, you know, it's the governor's mansion, and he's entitled to be there. So what's the problem? You're not governor. That always you know, the, that always flies well, doesn't it? Oh, the, the sense of entitlement is absolutely mind-boggling in this case. It really is. You know, with the job comes the house, and with the house comes the beach. You know, do you ever want to get into public office again? Do you ever want to be in a high-profile job? I'm sure that once this is done, his political career will be over. But then again, you never know with U.S. politics. But he will disappear for a while, that is for sure. He will be 100% tired of the public eye. Uh, obviously, uh, North Korea getting underneath the skin of uh, Donald Trump and, and you know poking the bear, so to speak. Uh, Donald Trump tweets uh, about 15 hours ago, North Korea has just launched another missile. Does this guy have anything better to do with his life? Hard to believe that South Korea and Japan will put up with this much longer. Perhaps China will put a heavy move on North Korea and end this nonsense once and for all. It just seems odd hearing or, or seeing Donald Trump tweet the words, does this guy have anything better to do with his life? Especially when we think of some of the tweets from the Trump in the, from the Trumpster in the, in the past little while. You know, uh, this, this continues to blow me away. And I think that he thinks that, well, I'm just going to put a bug in his, you know, somebody's ear and maybe make a suggestion that one of our, what another country will handle this for us. So what's the best way to do that? 
Well, I could go through the appropriate diplomatic channels, or I'll just use Twitter as my own private platform to let everybody know what I think. So, you know, the fact that he is, quote-unquote, practicing diplomacy, which is the biggest oxymoron of all, quite honestly, via Twitter, is 100% laughable. It's as if he has no idea of the world order, what the consequences of that tweet is, will be. And, and honestly, I think that he has very, very little understanding of uh, global, hot global issues. But, you know, Scott, I need to tell you, I, um, the last time we were on, I think it was last week, and we were talking about his tweets around Mika Brzezinski and, um, yeah. and the MSNBC morning show. So I posted that on my Facebook. And then a Trump supporter, whom I know and that I've conversed with for a number of years in the past, said, well, I 100% disagree with you even though, you know, the average person would be horrified by what he said. And when I read further, and other people were questioning this too, Trump supporters stand by him no matter what he does. Yeah. And he and his team know full well that they can do no wrong with that base. Yeah. And as long as they keep that base happy, no matter how ridiculous, we may see, we as liberals think, uh, that he is being, he will continue to exacerbate this behavior and perhaps even get worse because, quite honestly, his base expects it. Um, another tweet that he put out, uh, and, and I'm sure you, or maybe you have or haven't heard the story of uh, there's this little baby in the in the UK and uh, this child is on life support. There's some sort of experimental treatment. Uh, for this child that can be obtained in America. Uh, the United Kingdom has said, look, this is, uh, you know, unfortunately a lost cause. And, you know, we think the best thing is to just take the child off life support. To which Trump tweets, and talk about 180, uh, if we can help little hashtag Charlie Guard as per our friends in the UK and the Pope, we would be delighted to do so. Where does that come from? Where, 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 like, what, 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 what corner of the mind does that come from? You know, in his mind, he's thinking, oh, let's jump on this. And let me tell you something. I don't even think that he's thinking it. I am sure his team, you know, they comb all this stuff every day. So there are people, you know, reading the wires, gleaning every little bit of information that could possibly support what his base wants to hear. And they're thinking, well, what could possibly be wrong? Let's paint our president as a humanitarian, someone with empathy, who wants to save this child. And who's going to argue with that? And, and that's exactly what he did. You know, out of he comes out with these tweets. Now, some people say, you know, this is just distraction. It's all distraction from what the real issues are, one of them being the alleged ties with Russia. And, and that could very well be. That could absolutely be playing into this. And, and I firmly believe that, you know, even though we haven't heard Steve Bannon's name in a long time, trust me, he's there and he's pulling all the strings. So when you come up with some sort of narrative like this, who go up against him and say it's a bad thing? Because how will you be painted, especially, yeah. you know, via the media? Nobody is going to come and say, well, this is a bad idea. And honestly, imposing your health care and talking about somebody else's uh, health care is not 
columnists are going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. I would be really surprised. I think it's very dangerous territory. Uh, it almost seems like his uh, knee-jerk reaction to the chemical uh, warfare that was going on in Syria. You know, I, I know. I agree. And honestly, you know, you and I are calling them knee-jerk reactions. And I'd like to think that they are, and I think that there are some things that are that could plausibly seem to be knee-jerk reactions. And then i got to tell you, Scott, I think that most of it is quite calculated. Hmm. Um, G20 in Germany, uh, rumor has it that Putin and Trump are going to meet. Uh, Lord knows what this relationship is like. We've heard that they're, you know, there's a bromance. Then one minute they're, you know, the whole thing is ludicrous that they're even involved in, in talking with each other. Where is this going? What will come out of this? I think that what will come out of this is absolutely no good. Um, first of all, nobody's going to know at all what's going to go on in that meeting, right? There will be no press presence. There might be some photo op of shaking hands and. Well, maybe there won't be any press from North America, but they'll probably be from Russia. They'll have it all over the place. I know, and we know that all the wire services will be looking at the uh, the other wire services from out of Russia, such as TAS, or, you know, when uh, Putin's own people put pictures over the wire in order to get some photos from that. Um, you know, I, I think that for Trump and his team, it's win and win at all costs. And whatever they need to do that, if the Russians can help you, well, then the Russians can help you. But that's how does he? How does he? How does he straddle this fence? Because you know, obviously, he he doesn't want to seem too cozy with them because that just fuels rumors about the whole election interference. Uh, yet, on the other hand, he's certainly portrayed that he's buddies with them. So how how does he how does he straddle this fence? I think that he is a public persona regarding this relationship with Russia, and then I think that he has a private persona. And the private persona is that the Russians helped me once, they'll help me again, and I'll just let them pull the strings as long as I can stay where I am and, and, and help the party and, and stay in power. So, honestly, I, I think that that's the way that that whole thing is going to play out. Um, I think that they honestly, you know, there were many uh, people, especially in the uh, supporters of the Democrats, such as, let's say, Michael Moore, the infamous documentarian, who said that it would take about a year and then Trump would be impeached. I mean, this might be the inevitable, but the colossal, um, you know, summing of his nose at deep-seated, you know, institutions of democracy that underpin, you know, the United States as we know it or as we knew it is, is really quite mind-boggling. Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you, and have yourself a great week. And you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.